Hello and welcome to episode one of season two of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. Got a cracking episode lined up for you today. Speaking to James McCall of The Supernaturals, one of the hardest working bands in Britpop. Hailing from Glasgow, the band was signed in 1996, but have some amazing singles under their belt. James is really funny and has me in hysterics at some points during the podcast. Before we get cracking with the interview, just some housekeeping to get out of the way. Those of you new to the podcast, thanks very much for tuning in and listening. It's been fantastic to have you on board. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you can, find time to rate and write a review on Apple iTunes. That really helps. Those of you who listen to the season one will know that I bang on about that every episode. Also, if you'd like to support me financially, I do this all off my own back with no sponsorship. But if you'd like to say thank you for that, there's a Ko-Fi page you can get involved with, which is in the, the uh, podcast description notes. And that links you to like a buy me a coffee type of thing. Uh, it's three pounds. It's a one-off payment thing. You don't have to commit to anything. Social media, just search for Back to Britpop. But that's enough waffle. Let's hear from James about the Supernaturals. I'll be back at the end. Uh, welcome to the podcast, James. How are you? I'm good. Whereabouts are you in the, in the country? Uh, I live in uh, Stirlingshire. Um, which is uh, north of Glasgow. Uh, it's not really Glasgow, it's a countryside, really. I live out in the middle of nowhere, really. I don't say it, but how's your lockdown experience been for 2020 and beginning of this year? Uh, just same as everybody's, just everybody's getting tired of it. Get, yeah. I was getting tired of it in April, so <laughs> it's just going on forever. Obviously, you've missed certain aspects of of life more than others uh like interaction or gigs or anything particular that's been really frustrating for you well we uh we were we kind of were rehearsing in the summer there once it was okay to rehearse so i don't i think it was okay anyway none of us got covid so <laughs> we rehearsed from sort of august through to sort of november when it then it started to come back again yeah and uh we were doing music for about three months and kind of like working on new songs and stuff. It was it was really enjoyable for those three months. And then we did this thing for uh, Paul Quinn, a guy who used to play the drums at Teenage Fan Club, was putting this thing together for um, one of these benefit concerts where you go and you do you play in a kind of facility that's um, COVID uh, protected, and it was all like. Um, a sound stage and all that. So we did something there before Christmas, and then everything stopped. Yeah, just as did that. Is this the original band lineup of or of that you've managed to get no, together? I mean, well, uh, yeah, no, it's the original band that got back together a few years ago. Um, because our original drummer Gavin, who was in the band uh, long before we signed TMI, he chucked it about a year and half a year before we signed TMI. So we Alan then came in and did the drums us, but Gavin's a drummer now. So mm. Gavin's the original drummer, Mark's the original bassist. But uh, Derek Derek kind of came back and then he just basically couldn't really be bored with the rehearsing. Didn't really like having to rehearse on a Sunday. <laughs> he had a hangover <laughs> and stuff like that. So uh, <laughs> Derek, uh, he's probably he'll probably come back at some point, but at the moment he just doesn't really want to do it. He's like had had enough. He doesn't want to get in vans and drive and play gigs as well, which I kind of don't blame him either. Yeah, yeah. So going back a bit, uh, James, if you don't mind, I just wanted to find out a bit more about you and how you got into music and maybe what kind of music you were listening to growing up. Um, well, I, I, I sort of thought about this a lot. 
because I keep getting asked about it now. And at the t- when the band was like out in the nineties and the noughties, early noughties, I wasn't really too bored about it. But I suppose it would just have been. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we were, me and Derek and Gavin were listening to in the eighties when we were kind of like formative influences, things like the Monkees and Slade and the Move and. Uh, a lot of sort of soul music like Marvin Gaye and um, dub reggae and stuff like that. Um, really, wasn't kind of music from the eighties. No, <laughs> it wasn't the music at the time. Uh, you know, and the, the stuff, all the sixties stuff like the Beatles and so on. I mean, that wasn't really nobody was really into that. And we we had this little thing, and we were right into it. Like we'd get drunk on a, a Friday night after our work and. Or after uni and like yeah, listen to things like the Flaming Groovies and the Move and Slade and Mott the Hoople and a whole lot of other things like that. Really, XTC, just all the kind of all those kind of bands. And I suppose that was what we were really into. And when we when we sort of started the band, that was kind of what we wanted to emulate. We had no interest in trying to sound like um, I don't know, uh, Deacon Blue or Hugh and Cry or any of those kind of bands. Our, our thing was just a, it was just a kind of a guitar thing, really. And I think actually there was quite a lot of people in Britain in the early 90s who were doing what we were doing, but just doing it in different cities and so on, you know? Yeah, yeah. So do you think that's, that's helped or um, contributed to that kind of eclectic sound that you had, that kind of melting part of different styles and, and delivery, kind of like the deliveries, kind of, quite unique in terms of your sound I would say yeah I mean I've always listened to lots of that I mean I still listen to lots of different types of music and things and I mean like like the last few weeks I've been listening to let me think I mean I've got a playlist on my iPod and it was like it was a bit of echo on the bunny men um, Brandenburg concertos Joe Rawls Judas Priest, stuff like that. It was, it's just all kind of like all sorts of different things, you know. Um, and I've always been into different types of music. I've never really been into, well, I've been into certain types, but I've always been open to listen to lots of things. Yeah, I suppose that if you listen carefully, and I, I, you know, I could tell you what all our influences were from each song, but I, th- I think every band's like that, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so in terms of writing then, was it kind of like a joint effort for you guys or was there kind of like a, a main songwriting, um, so someone in charge of like the main lyrics and, and, and tune or was it something collective? Well, most of the time it's always me in charge of the lyrics and the top line melody. But so there's lots of songs where I've written completely myself and there's also songs, some really good songs where Ken, the old keyboard player, used to write, he'd write like... Um, He'd write these kind of things on piano and then I would come into the rehearsal room and say, what's that, Ken? That's pretty good. And I would just have an idea for a song and off we go. And we'd, so me and him wrote quite a lot of good songs between us, like uh, Everest and Pie in the Sky and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and Derek occasionally writes so- used to write songs, but he wasn't very prolific, but he's written some, he wrote a song, most of, a song called Life's a Motorway and... Uh, a couple of songs in the last couple of albums and stuff. So, but Derek never really sort of it, the the way it worked in the band was whoever had the best song and the best idea that kind of won out. Yeah, and we didn't, you know, we didn't. Um, we were quite 
weren't precious about it. It was more just whatever was best, that was it. And the producer or producers would always do that. You know, they would go yeah. whatever was the best song, the best lyrics. But I mean, the songs were different members of the band, like Alan and Mark, and have contributed stuff and have got songwriting credits, you know. Yeah, yeah. And with in terms of like um, content of the song and, and where you were coming from in terms of lyrics as well, where were you drawing from yeah. like most of your your kind of inspiration from there? Because it's not like a traditional, I'll say you don't have a palette of traditional songs, if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, I don't really know how that started. I think maybe when, when I first started writing songs, uh, I, I kind of, they were really bland and um I, you know, I wasn't really writing more in songs. And I just started kind of incorporating my own life into songs or things I'd read in books or phrases from TV and things that people had said. I sort of funneled that into songs and then started using my own style of lyrics, which was kind of like, I suppose a lot of it's from my life, but some of it isn't. Um, and that's kind of how we arrived at that kind of style. I, didn't, I mean, obviously, the, the people I really like, lyricists like, say, Ray Davis or Morrissey or even Jarvis Cocker and people like that, you know, they obviously, you know, you have an inspiration from really good lyricists, but you just have to kind of get your own thing together. And, um, you know, if you were writing a book, uh, people always say, write the book about yourself. You know, so it's kind of similar with songs. You know, you've kind of got to just write about your own experiences and your own kind of vocabulary and your own way of looking at life, really. And do you feel like you had something a little bit different to offer at the time? Because I, d- I definitely feel that in terms of listening to your music, there was certainly something you would you would definitely put you in a certain type of mood. And were you conscious that that's what you wanted to deliver? Well, I don't know if we were conscious of it because a lot of what you do, we didn't really think we were artists back in the day. We just thought we were musicians that kind of banged out songs. But looking back on it now as an older guy, yeah, we probably were artists. And um, yeah, that we had this kind of um, lyrical vibe. It was sort of, I suppose, slightly kind of, making fool of yourself, but also could be very serious at times as well. Mm. And I think a lot of people kind of mixed up between the fact that when we played live, we were very kind of up and kind of good, good time band and they didn't like really listen to the lyrics, you know? I mean, the lyrics to something like Smile is quite, it's quite dark actually when you go back and listen to it. You know, yeah, yeah. The actual words because it's just for for me if if you're um if you're playing these songs and doing gigs you don't really listen to the words anymore it's just sort of sounds you know but if you stopped and looked at it written on a bit of paper it's actually quite sad yeah, yeah. <laughs> i must have I, been quite a sad been, so, young man at the time yeah 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 i think um that, that's a lot of the, the sort of the, the sort of um uh analysis that's been put on uh, like the smiths in terms of you know, the music's very uplifting and, and uh, yeah, the lyrics have always tinged with, with like that darkness. And I, I definitely get what you're saying in terms of, you know, this, that forcedness of smile is, 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 is really clever. Um, do you still, do you think you give yourself, do you think you give, you gave yourself enough credit back then for that, that, those, those songs? Yeah, no, because the band all, we used to just mercilessly uh, take the piss out of each other all the time and anyone who got above themselves and even called themselves an artist would have got 
humiliated because <laughs> <laughs> most of us were quite witty, so it was always quite a, quite a kind of a good environment. But it was also good, you know, you get put down if you got a bit ahead of yourself and stuff. But uh, but yeah, going back to sort of the Smiths, this, for me, the Smiths were such an important band, not so much musically but lyrically for the, for that whole. 90s era Britpop thing you know mm. so many of the you know like Blur and uh, Pulp and ourselves and loads of bands you know you can hear Morrissey coming through um, uh, lyrically that kind of um, you know way of looking at the world mm. I mean he's gone a bit mental recently but I mean he is he was such a great lyricist and he still is you know but he's mm. just a bit he's gone mad you know? <laughs> You toured relentlessly, didn't you? I mean, there was no part of the country or, or that you, you hadn't seen, and you were, um, you know, you would drive to venues and, and and just not have anywhere to sleep for the night, and just try and try and find somewhere. Yeah, to go. well, but well, from about '93, where we first started, kind of, we started making these demo tapes um, back in the day. We would have cassettes, uh, so we'd make we go to this studio in Edinburgh. And we kind of we'd work on our music and uh, like a lot of kind of. Uh, how would you say, bedroom bands almost, or like bands that rehearse one now and again and play at someone's uh, birthday party. We Once we started recording and got really into it, we actually realised we weren't that bad. We were pretty good. And we had some good songs. So we put them all together on a cassette and uh, got it pressed up. And we had all these cassettes. And the only way really to get rid of the cassettes was to go out and do gigs and sell them. Uh, so we decided to do that because one of, one of the bands that we were always into in the, the 80s uh, was a band called The Replacements and they just kind of did that and Mark was a massive Replacements fan and he used to keep us all up and he would just say, well, why don't we just start going and, why don't we just start going and playing gigs? Because I think a lot, in those days, a lot of bands you would um, you would get your demo tape and send it to a record company guy in London and hope that he would be interested but we never really bothered with that. We just kind of thought, well, no one's going to bother with us. Let's go and enjoy ourselves. So we started um, we started booking. Well, first of all, we were listening to a thing on BBC Radio Scotland. Mark was, and he, some guy in Sky said he wanted bands to go up and play because they couldn't get enough bands up there. So we, Mark had replied to this guy and we went up and played for two nights uh, and had a brilliant time. And we just like played loads of cover versions and did all our own music and the, the crowds were great and really appreciative. Uh, and we just started, it just snowballed from there. We we bought PAs, we bought two PA systems. <laughs> we had two hmm. PA systems uh, running at once. And we just turn up in a bar, we set our PA system up and we start playing our own music, which is quite unusual because most people will do that. They'll turn up in a bar and we'll play covers. But we would just do it with our own stuff. And we, but you know, for encores and that, we would throw in like lots of cover versions and stuff. And then we'd sell our CDs and we'd have a mailing list. And after a while, we we, we kind of acquired a following, so to speak, around Scotland because people would, would know about us from just playing gigs and the days before the internet and all the rest of it. Uh, and then it started. Our manager, who's called Jerry, who's like a sort of friend from school, Jerry just thought, well, why don't we start going to England? You know, we've kind of done lots of stuff in Scotland. And we started going to like places like Manchester um, and then London and 
Oxford and all sorts of other places. Um, we, we supported um, Wilco Johnson actually in Leeds at one point. Yeah. Yeah, we got paid 50 quid for it, but we still thought it was worth doing. And we yeah. drove down to Leeds and did this gig and they were, like spoke to Wilco and chatted with him and um, it was the bassist out of the um, the Blockheads. Uh, it was his bassist and we just chatted with him. We just used to do stuff like that really just for fun. It was yeah. sort of adventure. I mean, it all became like a job as well because none of us could hold down jobs at that point because we were always gigging or recording and so we had to kind of de- devote our lives to it really. Yeah. And it just it all snowballed, snowballed and became... So by the time we signed DMI, we'd done about 300 gigs. Some, I don't know, Mark used to keep notes of set lists and stuff, but I don't know if he still does. But um, by about 95, which would have been about two and a half years later, we'd done about 300 gigs um, in all sorts of places. We'd played it, played it um the Phoenix Festival and Team the Park as an unsigned band and... Um, we'd actually done quite a lot, you know, before we even get involved with EMI so, or food. So, you know, we, yeah. and then once we get involved with food, we were just touring all the time. It was like non-stop, really. What was that uh, meeting like with uh, Food Records then? Did they come and did they send the A&R scouts out to see you or did you, what, what was it well, like? Well, no, we, we sent, a, we, we, had a, we had a CD release called Let It Bleed, which was a pun on the Rolling Stones, Let It Bleed. So yeah. we, we we didn't we didn't put a sheep in the front, but we were going. To, <laughs> but it was just, and uh, we we had uh, we sent that CD down to Andy food because by the time just before Andy came to see us, Jerry start had started kind of he started getting interest from record companies. People, someone came from Titi in the park from Warner Brothers and was interested in signing us, and then Andy appeared. From food, Andy's the guy, Andy Ross, the guy who's seen Blur and um, Jesus Jones and Idlewild and a whole lot of bands, you know. Um, so Andy, he turned up, uh, well, he, t- he was supposed to turn up when we were playing at the Dublin Castle at one point um, in the middle of summer. We'd, this is, I mean, I'm digressing here, but we'd, uh, we'd done a tour and, our, and Jerry suggested that we just do a tour of the south of England with the uh, tents, so we were like camping and stuff <laughs> uh, with like burners and <laughs> <laughs> uh, with a transit van, <laughs> and uh, we all slept in tents. And but Alan, our drummer, who was very rock and roll, he refused to get in a tent, and he basically just slept in the back of the van. <laughs> we were in like campsites with like we were in campsites with families and all that. <laughs> summer holidays, and we were like. We were wearing all these women's clothes and stuff, and arms wearing makeup, and it was just a weird scene. You know, the <laughs> people were just looking at us, thinking, "What's going on? Why are these guys camping, but then they're getting in a transit van and going away?" I think they might have thought we were burglars or something going out at night. But so we do. We did a tour. It was about a week, and we played in like Torquay and um, Falmouth, and we'd hand out leaflets in the afternoon, and people would come down and see us at night. So that had been that had all gone really well, and we the last night of the tour or the second last night of this little tour was in the Jerry had got us a gig in the, the Dublin Castle in the Camden where it was about ninety five summer of ninety five and um, so we did that gig and Andy was supposed to come and see us but we kind of get we get kind of cheated because somebody obviously realised he was coming 
and uh, got us moved on the bill to another slot an hour oh, right. later. So he missed us, or an hour, half an hour earlier, I can't remember. <laughs> so he missed us. Uh, so, but Jerry then, I think Jerry spoke to him and said, "Well, we'll come down again." So the next time he came to see us, uh, he came to see us in film, like a pub full of Chelsea supporters, which was weird, and uh, he really liked it. And uh, sort of said he was really interested in the band and so on. And um, he the, it kind of snowballed from there, you know. He at that point he was, in fact, that the week he came to see us it was a week of blur in the oasis with the what do you call it, you know, the thing with the two singles. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, and he was, he was telling us all about this stuff and all the rest. Of it. So we we were just kind of like laughing, thinking, oh, "What's going on here?" And um, yeah, Andy was Andy's a great guy. You know, he still is, but he uh, he came to see us and um, really liked the band and uh, really liked our songs and you know thought we had a certain amount of potential. I thought he was. A, I actually thought he was a Trump because he was <laughs> so badly dressed. So I don't know if you like use that word anymore, but he had this old Financial Times and he came up and he kind of hit me in the chest with it. And I said, no, I don't want to buy your newspaper, mate. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was kind of watching my telecasters because I was thinking, is he going to try and take them? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we were like, but then he was like, you know, I couldn't really understand because it was loud music. And then he, he's got a funny way of talking as well. So it was hard to understand what he was saying. But eventually we deciphered that he liked the band and thought we had potential and all the rest of it. So, yeah, it all worked out well. And that sort of studio time afterwards, what was what was that like? I mean, in terms of like getting that album ready uh, for release? Well, we'd worked in a studio called Split Level ourselves uh, with a guy called Neil and we'd kind of taught ourselves a whole lot of studio techniques. Um, <laughs> and so when we actually started trying to record, first of all, we started trying to record with a guy called Phil Vinyl, who produced uh, The Auteurs and um, Pulp and, oh God, I can't remember who else, Gene, people like that. So Phil had us up at um, Fish's studio. With, uh, Fish, the guy from Marillion, had a studio and... Um, place called Haddington just outside of Edinburgh so uh-huh. we went there for a week just before Christmas in 1995 it was a pretty weird experience Fish's Fish's wife was um, there she was the, the woman from uh, the Cayley video I don't know if you've ever seen it but there's this German model looking through a fence <laughs> so she was Fish ended up marrying her so she was she was what we 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 get dumped on this place, and she was she was walking about cooking his food in like leather trousers, and the whole band were all just like didn't know what to say. We were basically all young boys, this German model dolloping like pasta with meat or pigs. You know, we'd all be sitting fantasizing about our um, So basically, um, so we tried recording in this place, and it didn't really go well because I don't think the. Phil's a Phil's a good producer, but we weren't the right kind of band from. We weren't very disciplined. Uh, the band were lacking in a wee bit of discipline. Um, one morning I went <laughs> the last day I went in, and uh, I, I get up at eight o'clock, went into the, the recording room. It was about not eight. It was about nine or ten. It wouldn't have been eight. 
that's like normal people's time. Uh, and uh, Phil was sitting banging his head on the desk. And I was like, what's up, Phil? And he just went, this is just isn't working James <laughs> and I was like alright right. why don't we try something <laughs> and the band had all stayed up they'd all stayed up at night during the night watching because Fish had left all these DVDs of himself playing uh, concerts in like Rotterdam and uh, like Gdansk <laughs> playing Marillion songs and they all got right into this for some weird reason I wasn't they were all sitting up all night thinking I was trying to stay sharp, I wasn't in but uh, it was just that, uh, it didn't really work out, and when I had the last the second last night I walked, Fish had come home from a tour and I kind of walked by, because the, the recording complex was kind of connected to his house, and I walked by his, his, um, his uh, like living room, and he had his patio doors open, he was drinking a whiskey, and he was actually singing, he was actually singing Kayleigh. <laughs> a cappella to himself. <laughs> it's just like pure rock star stuff, you know what I mean? So, uh, aye, so that didn't work out at all. We got the mic. Andy, when Andy heard the mic, he just said, No, that's absolute garbage. You've just wasted £5,000 or whatever, whatever it cost. Yeah. So, <clears throat> uh, Andy had uh, Andy was in touch with this guy called Pete Smith, who was a producer. <sighs> He'd done the two Squeeze albums. Um, in the nineties, which are both really good albums, um, so but we but Pete had also worked with he'd worked with Sting and he'd done like the live version of Synchronicity and all that stuff. Mm. Uh, by the police, so that was quite cool. But he'd, he'd also worked with a guy called Chris DeBerg. I don't know if you know ever heard of him. Oh yeah. So Andy, was, <laughs> Andy would say, "Well, I've got this guy, Chris DeBerg guy. <laughs> he wants to work with you and obviously it was probably because we had a little bit in common with Squeeze but we were just Chris de Berg, we were just, <laughs> we didn't want anything to do with Pete because of that <laughs> those words and uh, I mean I actually went and bought a, I actually went and bought a Chris de Berg, uh, <laughs> uh, Chris de Berg CD to listen to <laughs> but uh, we were going somewhere to do a gig and I broke it when I was cleaning the van from the window with the snow. So, <laughs> so we never got to hear what it sounded like, but we we did. <laughs> I just knew that. I just heard that song, A Snowman Came Travelling or something like that. I don't oh. know what, I think that might be the title of it. Obviously, you know, so all that kind of, so we were like, this guy's going to be, he's going to be terrible, he's not. But actually when Pete went in the studio with us, he was brilliant. He really, he totally knocked us into shape. We were really undisciplined and, mm. um, it was a bit like when you're a kid and you you know you were a, you, you play football and you get a man you know you get one of these kind of young guys who thinks they're a manager managing a kid under 14s team yeah. starts shouting at everyone that's what Pete was like at first he basically just he had to knock us all in his shape and he'd uh, I mean just did arguments with everyone <laughs> just like the first day we were in Alan. Alan was playing the drums and Pete was just like you're playing that too fast nobody plays this song at 100 40 BPM and Alan just like threw his drumsticks at him and went out the studio for two hours and then when he came back Pete had somehow magically kind of got him to go in the room and uh, do his drums perfectly and he did this with everyone he just kind of like worked on them and um, eventually kind of knocked him into shape and 
he was fantastic. He knew how to uh, layer things and get the, the, the track sounding big and all the rest of it. And right from the off, he was a really good producer with us and really worked with him. So, you know, I think it was maybe the squeeze side of things. It was, you know, um, better than Chris the Berg side of whatever, what he was doing. Yeah, so, yeah. The, uh, album, the album did really well, didn't it? I mean, it got some great reviews. Yeah, I mean, it did. It got really good reviews um, and it got in the charts and it, some of the singles did really well, like Smell did really well in Japan and stuff. And uh, a lot of the songs did pretty well. Yeah, it was it was quite unexpected because we were always, we always, each kind of step, we always thought, well, this is all going to fall apart and we're going to go back to playing in Sky soon. So we just kind of like... It just all happened and we didn't really expect it, you know. But, I mean, I suppose we, we did a lot of work and a lot of gigging and stuff, uh, which kind of spread the word, you know, mm. about the band. So that's kind of one of the reasons why it succeeded. Those songs uh, from that album are still, you still hear them around now, don't you? They're, they're, they're used still. So to have that kind of recognition for some of that writing and the work yeah. that you put in must have been amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, Smile is still it still gets played and it still gets like you know it's always going on compilation albums and um i mean that song was just uh just before we get signed to food um we were in the rehearsal rooms in glasgow and ken, again ken was just playing around these chords and i said that's quite good why don't we i've got i had this other bit that i'd been working on we joined them both up and then i started singing sort of rough words and then we went home because we were we two days rehearsing in a row and went, well, I went home and wrote the words and then came back in and everybody said, ah, they're fine. <laughs> we didn't really, we didn't think much of the song and even when we were doing the song for the album, we didn't think that much of it. Um, it wasn't our favourite, but it seems, I mean, I suppose it's it's very catchy and people seem to, you know, they still like it. So. I mean, actually, when when we were recording in a, a place called, so we were recording in a place called Farnham, we were recording Smile, and we'd kind of built it all up and put the kind of Beach Boys singing on it and the synthesizers and all that, and you know, we put it up in the big speakers and it sounded fantastic. And Andy came down, Andy from Food, he came down in the train to Guildford to see us, and he sat down and he listened to it, and then he, <laughs> he stood up and says, "Now I know why I sing." <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, think, well, you didn't know already. <laughs> so, but I, so I, it was, it's, um, and it, it, it got nominated for Ivor Novello, and it, it's just a song that's got legs. It's one of those songs that's kind of, you know, seems to sort of people really like it, and it's just still an evergreen, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's an indie disco favorite. Can't knock it really. Lightning in a bottle, almost. Yeah, but ten years ago, I was at a thing where. My kids were really wee and I was like a thing with Leslie, a, a girl who used to work at EMI and Leslie runs this thing called the uh, Baby Disco and it was like a disco for uh, like toddlers. So I'm sitting there talking to Leslie and then someone put it on really loud, this toddler disco and all the, all the toddlers started dancing. <laughs> <laughs> but it does sounded fantastic. I yeah. can see why. <laughs> I mean, anytime I hear it, it doesn't... Uh, you know, 
I mean, there was a funny, because there was a funny one actually. It was a couple of years ago. Gav, Gavin, the drummer, you know, the original drummer. Mm. One day we were all going to a rehearsal, and Gav was in getting his hair haircut just before the rehearsal, and uh, the hairdresser was saying to him, "So, what are you doing this afternoon?" He says, "Oh, I'm going up to rehearsal rooms to play in a band." Um, and the woman says, "Oh, that's good. Um, what band is it?" And just at that point, it came on the radio for an advert for. A, Arnold Clark and Gavin turned around to her and went, Is that band? <laughs> and she must have thought, This guy's got mental problems or something. He's like, He's telling me that this song, song that's just come on the radio, is <laughs> so he's in the band that plays this song. <laughs> so, he's... <laughs> so Gavin's like that. Actually, no, I, I'm in that band, but I'm not going to say any more because this is just too weird. But, but uh, aye. So it's just, it's just sort of, oh, that's a sort of fairly typical example of how strange things are with that song, you know. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say there was another funny one with it where Mark, our bass player, he kind of left the band in about 2000 or 2001 because he had no money and he went and worked in a drive parking cars <laughs> a casino. Uh-huh. And he said... He said to me one day, I met him a few weeks after he started this job, and he said, I was part of a car. <laughs> I turned the radio on, and the smile came on, and I just put my head in the steering wheel and started crying. <laughs> so anyway. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what to laugh at. That that. Was, I thought that was funny anyway. <laughs> I'm not supposed to laugh, but he was laughing. The, the touring process for that album must have been relentless as well because you toured with almost everybody. Yeah, we did. We took, well, we we just we did gigs with all sorts of people. We did gigs with people who were our kind of idols, like the Boo Radleys and Paul Weller, and, you know, people like that. And we also did a whole lot of gigs with people that we know nothing like Tina Turner and. Um, uh, I mean, we none. We didn't even know about Robbie Williams. We I didn't know in about his music until we actually started. To, I didn't even know about Take That. Because we were in our own little cocoon, mm. do you know what I mean? So we didn't, we, we didn't really watch Top of the Pops and stuff. You know, we'd, we'd be listening, listening to like the move or whatever, and all that was just over our heads. Mm. Uh, you know, Mark knew about it all because Mark was a kind of Mark used to kind of keep tabs and all sorts of stuff, but um, we didn't know anything about him. And he offered us a, we didn't have anything to do for a month. It was October '97. And he had brought an album out, so we thought we'd do this just to see what it's like. So we went and toured, toured with him for a month, which was a, a bit of a laugh. Um, he was actually really good. This was the this was the weird thing, you know, because you know we we'd seen so many bands, played with lots of bands. You could tell a good band straight away, you know, from a, from someone that was like faking it. So yeah, mm. he was pretty damn good actually. So yeah, loads of loads and loads of people. Who else did we play with? Play with Gene, and we did a lot of one-off gigs with people like Sleeper and so on, and yeah, just really all sorts of bands. Really, well, at this yeah. time when you were touring, were you thinking about the second album or or recording? Were you writing on the, at the same time? Or yeah, well, we were. We were writing all the time, and we had um, we'd go to this uh, split level in Edinburgh, and we had a lot of demos uh, worked on. Um, but sometimes we didn't actually demo songs. We just go, we just record them in the studio. Uh, Pete or Andy would just go. They see us playing a song at a gig, and they go, "Yeah, just record that." And we just kind of record it 
for instance, I wasn't built to go up at this time, and Everest and songs like that. They weren't demoed. They were just they were written one week and recorded the next. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, probably, and a lot of the songs we'd be just I'd just be writing songs all the time, really. Um, constantly writing songs. It's always Ken, and you know we we, we never really stopped. Did, uh, did, we always kind of kept our hand in, and we'd do songs at sound checks, did, stuff. Did the label? Uh, sorry, gonna, sorry. I no, sorry. I was going to say because a, a lot of the bands I've spoken to on the podcast have said that. Well, in those days, that labels weren't necessarily putting you under any pressure to do writing and to get the next record out. Was it the same for you for Food uh, um, and EMI? Were they were they relaxed in terms of what? You yeah, we did. Yeah, they didn't put, tell us to do anything. That, uh, we never, we never get told to remix them. We never had someone coming into the studio and saying, "Can you turn the snare drum up?" No, you know, or it was always it was always just a case of that's good. Andy would split songs into four types. He would say that's a single, and then he would say that's a really good track, but it's not a single. Then he would say that's a B side, <laughs> and he would say that's rubbish. <laughs> so you would, and he would just let us go and do what we wanted. Um, uh, and the record label, yeah, my and that, we just didn't. I think it's different from what from uh, when I was in the Hussies. Um, we used to be quite pally with Las Vegas and from reading between the lines with how the record company treated Las Vegas and how they how compared to you know the sort of way we did things uh, everything was much more relaxed in the 90s and a lot more I think artistic control I think is the word you just kind of did what you wanted and if mm. it worked worked and if it didn't then you get dropped you know I don't think they tried to, the, the record company people so much tried to micromanage you. I think maybe they did in the 80s, but in the 90s, it was just like, you know, just let the bands do what they want kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. For that particular type of music. That just seemed to be, it was the kind of like um, the era where, you know, British music and, and pop culture was just going, uh, you know, inter international essentially in that, I guess there was that lots of independent labels, so they obviously they, they never truly are really independent labels, I guess, but there seemed to be freedom, bands galore, and, and just a lot of uh, opportunities for, for that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it was a kind of like a, like a last hurrah, really, wasn't it, for the music yeah. industry before it came in. It, it was definitely the last, it was the last of all the um, NME type of kind of crazes that the NME had kind of been keeping going since the 60s. You know, they would come up with something and then for a year or two and then move on to another craze. And I think after Britpop, music sort of stopped doing that in Britain a lot. Well, maybe not, maybe hip hop and like dance music still does it, but guitar music uh, sort of became very kind of, how would you say, it's a split and fragmented into all sorts of little things and it was never really a big movement being controlled by the, the, the press, you know. Mm. So it was kind of like a last hurrah. There was a whole lot of other, like, last aspect. There was the last aspect where there was a lot of money around, I think, for bands. And it was also the last era where they used, were using tape and, like, Pro Tools all the time. Things like that, you know. So it was a, it was a kind of last, last thing. So what's the future for yourselves then? And I obviously everything is obviously put on hold, but, you know, post-COVID and everything, you know, fingers crossed, everything starts to get back to normal. 
what's the plan for the supernaturals in in 2021 what's the dream <laughs> yeah well well we don't <laughs> we don't really have any dreams that those were destroyed years ago but we, <laughs> we sort of we just kind of work on <laughs> we just kind of work on we've been working on two albums which we were going to you know we got the money to record but we couldn't get a studio and we were like we kind of get caught out by covid you know so mm. we're going to do that two records we're working on and uh, just before covid came in actually we played with our last gig was with Embrace. So we kind of just still, hopefully when it comes back, we'll go back to doing things like that, gigs on our own and the odd kind of support gig here and there. But we don't have any great plans. We just kind of like recording, really, and putting records out. We're not, we're not, we're not too fussy. Do you know what I mean? Are the, are the songs coming trying, from a... Try and make them good, and that's about it. Are the songs coming from a different place, do you think, or are you writing differently nowadays? I think, yeah, I think it, obviously you mature or you, I don't know if you would, I'd use the word mature just to try. <laughs> you get older, so you can't really sing about certain things anymore, can you? When you are, you just be silly. So you have yeah. to try and sing about, get, I mean, was it Paul McCartney? Or it was about 15 years ago he brought that album out, Memory Almost Full. Was it that one or was it the one before it? And I thought that was amazing that he'd written all these songs about his life. I don't know if you've heard that. Yeah, I think he, I, he, I know of it. Was it yeah. A really good album, and he and he kind of like uh, so so you know he changed his sort of lyrical outlook and yeah from time to time. Yeah, I mean the lyrics will change a bit, and it'll probably maybe be more reflective and more like looking at your life and stuff, and probably looking at things like death and stuff like that, but. Um, I think that's just what happens to you if you're still writing songs and you get older. You know, you don't you don't write about like getting getting crazy with it, being a lazy lover and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you you write about other things. Last thing for me then, James, and I'll let you go. Is just I always like to ask, what song or songs really do you still love to play live? Are there, is there anything that really is something that completely? Bowls you over on stage, if you like. I don't know. I think um, my favourite song from each of our records to do live would probably be a song called Dung Beetle. I like doing that from the first album. Yeah. And I like a song called Idiot. Uh, and I like uh, a song called What We Did Last Summer from the third album. And from the most recent ones, I like a song called Bird of Luck. And or song, the other one, those five songs. I've, I would just happily do a set of those five songs, plus smile, <laughs> yeah, for the... take the money and run. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, James, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I really appreciate it. It's been really fascinating to hear about the supernaturals for past and present, and then hopefully the future, and hopefully I'll be able to get to see you play live again soon if you're coming to Southampton. Yeah, well, hopefully we do get out, but, you know, it's, it's all looking pretty bleak at the moment, you know, but uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Well, I have everything we crossed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Chris, no bother. Thanks again to James for speaking to me for the podcast. It was fantastic to speak to about the supernaturals. One thing I just wanted to mention on the podcast is Speakeasy Fanzine, which is a Britpop indie fanzine that comes out every month it's a amazing tactile thing in this digital age 
made with love and care and attention. They have great features, interviews with indie legends, looking back at uh, the music from the 90s, and also looking forward to, you know, music now and guitar pop that's being made today. And there's some great bands out there that are, they're flying the flag for. If you want to get involved in that, visit speakeasyfanzine.bigcartel.com and order some copies from there. Very reasonably priced and like I say, an amazing thing. And just to reiterate what I said at the beginning of the podcast, please get involved in Back to Britpop by uh, tweeting me, Facebook and Instagram and the Ko-Fi page and anything else you can find me on. Uh, your support uh, is much appreciated. Anyway, hopefully I'll see you again very soon. Take care. <laughs>